Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. We're recording on the afternoon of Wednesday, the 28th of September today, though this episode won't come out for a few days at least. We're going to do a bit of news, starting with the latest developments in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and then move on to the recent meetings in New York at the General Assembly. But then we'll finish away from the news with some reflections on the role of Track 1.5 dialogues. But we must begin with Russia-Ukraine, where there have been some major developments. In early September, Ukrainian forces commenced a counterattack in northeastern Ukraine near Kharkiv, apparently tricking the Russians into thinking they were going to attack further south, and regained almost 9,000 square kilometres of territory, which for Australians, that's almost four times the size of the Australian Capital Territory, the ACT, where Canberra is located. And that is more territory than Russia had captured in the previous five months. Then, a few weeks later, on the 21st of September last week, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a partial troop mobilisation of 300,000 reservists. In a fiery speech, Putin said that Russia was at war with the collective West and effectively threatened to use nuclear weapons to defend Russian territory. Just looking at the news today, there's reporting of statements from officials in Moscow that suggest that Russia is going to formally annex four territories in Ukraine. Over the past week, there have been some sham elections or referenda on independence, and they're going to recognise those results probably at the end of this week and incorporate those four territories, including in the Donbass, later this week. Now, this mobilisation announcement is pretty strong evidence that Russia is losing the war and Putin knows it. Putin could have chosen to withdraw Russia's arguably overextended forces in the south, for example, back behind the Dnipro River, which would have been easier to defend. But instead, he chose to throw more soldiers at the problem into defending this longer extended front line. It's not clear how effectively Russia will be able to train and deploy these new troops. And the decision is at least somewhat of a political gamble for Putin by bringing the reality of the war closer to the Russian people. Though, it must be said, most of those affected will be ethnic minorities from outer provinces rather than in the major cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg. We're therefore entering a pivotal stage of the conflict, Alan. Can I start with your reaction to the past month's developments? Well, I guess much like everyone else, uh, Darren, it, it certainly reinforced my view that the decision to go into Ukraine was a disaster for Putin and ranks alongside those other 21st century strategic catastrophes of the American invasion of Iraq and the Brexit decision. But look how the conflict develops from here. Not much I can say apart from, you know, reading informed people like Lawrence Friedman in the UK and Mick Ryan uh, here in Australia. I certainly can't predict what's going to happen. But in the words of Gideon Rackman of the FT that I was just reading this morning, and he's not a writer given to hyperbole, 
he said most of the alternative outcomes range between bleak and catastrophic. But, I mean, you've been following these events more closely than me. What are you seeing? Yes, it's a very dangerous time. And I think it's more important than ever to try to understand Putin's calculus. So I've tried to build a bit of a model of that. Oh, yay! (laughs) (laughs) Got to give the people what they want, Alan. (laughs) So it starts with a non-nuclear power, Ukraine, potentially achieving a conventional battlefield victory over a nuclear power, Russia. And Russia has now done two things. It's deepened its conventional battlefield commitment with the mobilisation, but also threatened to use tactical nuclear weapons if a given but not quite specified line is crossed. On the mobilisation, I see two key dynamics. First, as foreshadowed, whether Russia can effectively shift the conflict back into a long-term stalemate, helping Russia by allowing more time for Western support to fracture for Ukraine or for the Ukrainian economy to collapse. In this sense, mobilisation is not too negative overall because it's less bad for Putin to commit to deepening conventional conflict compared to reaching quickly for the nuclear trigger. But will it tangibly improve Russia's performance on the battlefield within a reasonable time frame? Well, that remains to be seen. Second is how this then plays domestically. Does it secure Putin's position by placating his even more militaristic flank? Or does it begin to undermine his popular support such that it in some way endangers his rule? My sense and what I'm hearing is that he remains politically very secure, but I guess no one can be 100% sure. That's the conventional side. Then we turn to the nuclear threats. If Ukraine crosses a red line, or maybe even if Russia's military simply collapses, then Putin's bluff will be called and he'll face the choice of whether to use nuclear weapons or, on some level, admit defeat. The tactical use of nuclear weapons has been debated before, such as within the US Truman administration when they were trying to win the Korean War. On Putin's calculus, he won't want to use nuclear weapons, let's make that clear, since breaking the taboo would have unpredictable consequences. It's also not clear to me what their use would achieve tactically in terms of a concrete battlefield gain, but I suppose it would be halting and then deterring Ukrainian offensives or counter-offensives, perhaps. Regardless, I think it's true that a nuclear strike becomes more attractive, or maybe it's better to say it becomes less unattractive, the worse the war is going for Russia. This means it's absolutely critical that the rest of the world, both NATO forces and quasi-friendly states like China, make it 100% clear that using nuclear weapons would be worse for him than not using them. But this is a very tricky signal to send, so I'm going to break it down into its two halves. First, NATO needs to make threats that it will definitely carry out if nuclear weapons are used, but that would not be viewed as an escalation that provoked a spiralling Russian retaliation, possibly nuclear, against NATO countries. So you're looking for a sweet spot of some kind of horizontal escalation that is proportionate to the use of nuclear weapons. What does that even mean? Perhaps it means conventional strikes by NATO forces on Russian forces inside Russia, or at least a devastating intervention on the battlefield in Ukraine. But would that include newly annexed parts of Ukraine like the Donbass? So it's a difficult question. 
Sorry, Darren, to interrupt there, why does it need to be made clear? What are the arguments for clarity rather than for strategic ambiguity, if you like, in such circumstances of the sort that Jake Sullivan has already been expressing from Washington? You know, there will be serious consequences. I think, look, I'm not 100% certain of this answer, but my intuition, and I don't recall my strategic studies lessons on this from more than a decade ago, is that the benefits of using nuclear weapons are going to be more concrete. So he'll be able to point to losses um, or identify losses that he needs to reverse or halt, and nuclear weapons will provide one way of doing that. And it's obviously a gamble, but the risk of being ambiguous is that he underestimates the response which makes the use of weapons relatively less unattractive. And so I think this is a case where privately, and I don't see merit in doing it publicly, but privately being crystal clear of the kind of escalation that would be undertaken, both to raise the cost in his mind of using weapons, but also so that he adjusts his expectations so when the response does come, he doesn't see it as an escalation that could lead to all-out nuclear war, some kind of total war, both those reasons call for clarity in private. Okay. Now, we have the other side of the equation, though, and this, if anything, is even more difficult because, you know, you can say here are the costs of using nuclear weapons, but then the question becomes, well, what are the costs of not using them? In other words, is there a defeat that would be preferable to the use of nuclear weapons? And this is where I think at some point we have to consider the possibility that the interests of NATO and the interests of Ukraine may actually diverge. For example, let's say Putin does not use nuclear weapons to defend the Donbass region and that Ukraine successfully retakes the region and we return to some pre-February 24 status quo. That would be an amazing victory, right? But what then if President Zelensky of Ukraine wants to finish the job, he's feeling emboldened, and courageous, and he wants to continue on to liberate Crimea, which we'll recall was unquestionably illegally taken from Ukraine in 2014. I think that Moscow would be more likely to break the nuclear taboo to defend Crimea, given its place in Russia's imagination, given how popular Putin was after its retake in 2014. I think that would fundamentally threaten his political survival if he allowed that to proceed. So assuming that, Would it be in NATO's interest to support Ukraine with similar threats of retaliation if Russian forces went nuclear, even in this case to right a historic wrong? I've heard it said that the Ukrainians might even be willing to endure a nuclear strike to reclaim their country on the whole. But regardless of their bravery, any nuclear action would not be limited to that conflict. It would have ripple effects beyond the war and into the international order for a long time to come. And so I do wonder whether the world's collective interest in avoiding the use of nuclear weapons being used at all might be greater than its collective interest in liberating Crimea in particular. So, look, these are impossibly difficult questions for President Biden and other Western leaders to answer, but that's what they're facing, I think. Alan, any reaction from you on these issues, especially the nuclear question? 
Well, they may be impossibly difficult questions, but they're questions that Biden and other Western leaders have to answer. Listening to your comments was a reminder to me, as someone who remembers the Cold War, how much effort and serious thought in government and academia over a period of 30 years went into the question of nuclear deterrence and the management of escalation ladders. And as you demonstrate, we urgently need to think about and debate these issues again for a new era. Yeah. Well, two last quick points from me. First, while we agree on the urgency of the nuclear angle being considered, it's still worth saying that the most likely outcome is still a long, drawn-out conflict. And as of today, at least, it does not seem like Russia has begun the preparation to deploy nuclear weapons. Second, though, I think the international angle is quite interesting. Last week, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO, met in Uzbekistan. It was Xi Jinping's first trip abroad since the pandemic, but Putin was obviously the focus. The Indian Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, told Putin in a face-to-face -face meeting of the need to, quote, move onto a path of peace and also reminded him of the importance of, quote, democracy, diplomacy and dialogue, which I think can be viewed as a clear rebuke. Even more surprisingly, Putin appeared to acknowledge Chinese concerns when he met with Xi Jinping and gave a public statement, saying that we understand your questions, so Chinese questions, and concern about this. During today's meeting, we will, of course, explain our position, end quote. China and India might be the two most influential states in Putin's calculus, actually, which is why Beijing and New Delhi need to be lobbied hard by NATO members, Australia as well, to present a unified position together on, at the very least, the unacceptability of nuclear weapons use. But it's scary times. Anyway, let's move on to the UN meetings. As we've mentioned on the podcast before, in September of each year, the United Nations General Assembly commences its operational year. This year, it's the 77th session, and it begins with this high-level set of meetings, formerly known as the General Debate, and in which every UN member country's leader is invited to give an address to the General Assembly. The speech I want to begin with is that from the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, who gave a very dark speech to welcome and open the session. He said, quote, our world is in big trouble, divides are growing deeper, inequalities are growing wider, challenges are spreading farther. He would go on to say that we are gridlocked in colossal global dysfunction. And later, here's a bit of a longer quote, our world is in peril and paralyzed. Geopolitical divides are undermining the work of the Security Council, undermining international law, undermining trust and people's faith in democratic institutions, undermining all forms of international cooperation. We cannot go on like this, end quote. I found it Hard to disagree with him, Alan, but I also could not help wonder if Mark Beeson, writing in the Lowy Interpreter, was right when he said that no one seems to be taking much notice of anything Guterres says, or no one with the power to make a difference at least. Alan, the UN obviously still does a lot of functional work, not least in the realm of peacekeeping, but as a mechanism for addressing the biggest challenges facing humanity, it seems worryingly impotent at the moment. What do you see as the enduring purpose of these UNGA meetings and indeed the UN more generally? And can the Secretary General themselves play a meaningful role? 
From the beginning, the UN differed from the earlier League of Nations because the Allies recognised that for a global multilateral body open to all to succeed, high intentions were not enough, as we saw in the failure of the League. The underlying realities of global power also need to be factored in, and that's why we have a Security Council, of course, with veto powers exercised by the permanent members. So a mix of realpolitik and idealism has always existed in the UN. The question that we'll come back to when we talk about Penny Wong's speech in New York is whether the ingredients in that mix are still the correct ones. But there's no doubt that, however frustrating it can be, we need a forum in which all the states, from you know Kiribati to Indonesia or from Iran to Israel, can express their views and have their say and where critical work like that of the specialised agencies can continue. Now, the Secretary-General is always going to be someone who can secure at least the tacit agreement of all the permanent five members to be appointed, so they're naturally going to be skillful readers of diplomatic signalling. But their own strength of character will always come through, and we've had some with lot of strength of character and some with hardly any. And the best of them have indeed been able to make a difference. And look, in a way, despite what Mark was saying, the simple fact that you and I are talking about Guterres's speech demonstrates that he can at least make himself heard in the sort of loud clamour of the global conversation. So when we hear him say, we cannot go on like this, It's a sobering assessment from someone in his position and something we should take seriously. Mm. I used to teach a class on international organisations here at the ANU and one segment covered the role of the Secretary-General. Basically, the SG is theorised as having two diplomatic functions beyond their administrative responsibilities. One, what's called the exercise of good offices, where she or he can act as a global intermediary in dispute resolution without a Security Council mandate. And two, agenda setting and advocacy. Right now, however, the major global fault lines are among the permanent five, by and large, rendering, I think, the SG's intermediary role much less effective in that superpower context. Meanwhile, everyone kind of knows what the issues are, Mm. so I think the agenda setting role is also muted. So just as the Security Council has achieved very little lately, I think the SG's influence is also sort of concomitantly reduced. But it's worth emphasising, as you did, Alan, in many ways, this is a feature, not a bug of the system. The Security Council in particular is supposed to be deadlocked when the P5 disagree, Mm. the point being that it's better to talk about it and disagree about it and have a non-functioning international organisation than to have the major powers sort their issues out through fighting global world wars. But of course, it's frustrating, especially given the scale of the global problems we are facing. But the UN is simply not designed to deal with such conflicting interests. I think back to work I did in the 2000s on peacekeeping, and one of maybe the most important mantra of peacekeeping is that for it to succeed, for peacekeeping operations by the United Nations or anyone to succeed, There needs to be a peace to keep. Both sides need to want peace and consent to the presence of peacekeepers for them to be effective. 
The same is kind of true for the international system. The UN can only be effective when the major players want it to be, and then it can serve as a forum for sharing information and working out solutions. Now, does that make these meetings or the UN more generally irrelevant? Absolutely not. You know, you've already mentioned the work of the specialised agencies, Alan, and we're about to turn to Australia. But one reason UNGAR and these particular September meetings matter, I think, is that they matter to the vast majority of small and very small states in particular who don't have much of an overseas representative presence anywhere except, you know, maybe a handful of close neighbours and trading partners and then New York. For example, in our region, Kiribati, as you mentioned, Nauru, Vanuatu and Solomon Islands don't have missions in Washington, D.C., but they do have missions in New York. And those were the only nations I checked. I'm sure it's more broadly true, especially in places like Africa. These governments judge it worthwhile to make the investment to staff offices in New York at the United Nations. So while nations like Australia and us here on this podcast, Alan, might struggle to see the value sometimes and be frustrated by it, these countries see the value, they care. And if they care, it's really smart of us to care as well. And on that note, let's turn to Australia. Our national statement was given by Foreign Minister Penny Wong, who led Australia's delegation, but she travelled also with Senator Pat Dodson, who is the government's special envoy for reconciliation and implementation of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which for those listeners who are not familiar with it, is a 2017 petition by First Nations Australian leaders to change the country's constitution to improve the representation of Indigenous Australians. According to Foreign Minister Wong, Senator Dodson joined her, quote, to explain and advance the government's commitment to implement the Uluru Statement from the heart in full, and that the two would hold discussions, quote, to listen and learn from the experiences of other countries and Indigenous representatives as Australia moves to deliver a First Nations foreign policy. With that as background, Alan, we have a statement or a speech to analyse, which is our bread and butter. So what was notable to you about Australia's UNGA statement and the visit overall? It was an excellent speech and it was interesting because it was a strong affirmation of what you might call the middle power activist strand in Australian thinking about its role in the world. First, and you sort of touched on this, as we noted before, the Albanese government's emerging foreign policy begins with who we are, with national identity. That's come through in a lot of speeches the foreign minister begins with the indigenous legacy and then continues through the multicultural nature of contemporary Australia. The UN speech then draws on several strands of Labor Party legacy, really, to make some points about the current world and to set an agenda for Australian foreign policy. She noted, and this is not unusual, almost any Labor minister turning up in New York will do this, the role of H.V. Evert in the San Francisco conference, which set up UN, and especially the important part he played in securing changes that empowered the small and middle-sized uh, countries in the General Assembly uh, relative to the Security Council. Senator Wong notes in particular that Evert understood 
the importance of small and medium nations working together to, quoting her, maintain their sovereign choices. These are legacies we renew today, she announces. She then goes on to speak about the way Evett saw economic and social security as a precondition for peace and pressed for the UN to extend its ambit to these issues. And these again are the legacies Australia renews today, she says. So those are pretty direct policy commitments and they connect to the detailed section of the speech that talks about Australia's engagement with the South Pacific and Southeast Asia, including the role of development. So there's a deep regionalist strain in the speech, another echo of Rudd and Gillard and earlier Labor governments. Then we have an interesting reflection on what I think is really an unacknowledged difference in Australian policy over the famed rules-based order of, of frequent reference. Senator Wong describes it like this. We know that we will always be better off in a world where rules and norms, whether on trade, the maritime domain, or military engagement, on the environment, or human rights, are clear, mutually negotiated, and consistently followed. Now, I think all Australian governments would agree with that, but it's not quite the same thing as the rules-based order when the phrase is used to encompass all the structural dimensions of the international order established under American leadership after World War II. The speech is also a full-blown defence of multilateral diplomacy, and it includes, I haven't checked this, but I think it's the most direct call for major reform of the UN and the Security Council I've heard from an Australian minister. She asks for permanent representation for Africa, Latin America, India and Japan on the Security Council. And the speech concludes, humanity has benefited from the multilateral system, from the rules that have underpinned an unequaled period of human development. Humanity will pay the price if we allow it to flounder. So no hint of negative globalism here. And in this connection, she reaffirms a bid first announced by Julie Bishop for Australia to look for another seat on the Security Council in 2029-2030. As you'd expect, there was a strong denunciation of Russia's attack on Ukraine and a call for China to use its influence in Moscow. And this leads her back to the nuclear issue, which you and I discussed before, and another point of continuity with earlier Labor policies. She says, Australia has always pursued a world without nuclear weapons, and we will redouble our efforts to this goal and to strengthen the non-proliferation regime. So again, that's a commitment to an active non-proliferation and disarmament agenda. That's really interesting, Alan. I'm just thinking about your point of Senator Wong offering a formulation of a rules-based order that is different to how some might hear the phrase rules-based order. And it had not occurred to me, and I'm not thinking about China as much or Russia, I'm thinking about swing states in the region, our Pacific and Southeast Asian partners in particular, that when they hear the term rules-based order, are they hearing, you know, a US unipolarity, untrammeled neoliberalism, decisions like the Iraq war, all the baggage that comes with that old phrase? Or are they hearing, as we kind of want them to hear, 
No, it's about process. It's about negotiation. It's about common rules and dispute resolution not done by force. We might need a different term if that's the case because of the baggage with the old term. I mean, Senator Wong's formulation is really quite compelling, but it's not a pithy statement either of two or three words. So something that we may have to revisit in the future. But for me, I went back and looked at a couple of the recent UNGAR national statements from Australia, one delivered by Julie Bishop when she was foreign minister in 2017, and then one by Maurice Payne as foreign minister in 2018. And they make a fascinating contrast with Senator Wong's speech. All three speeches start with a few words about the history of the UN and its purpose, but then they go on to do, as their first order of business, very different things. Bishops launches immediately into a criticism of North Korea, who at the time were causing a lot of trouble. You might remember Donald Trump's fire and fury threat. Maurice Payne's takes longer to get, I think, to a specific point. But when it does, it focuses on the 2017 foreign policy white paper and how that sort of reflects Australia's interests and what we are going to do about pursuing them globally. But if we turn to Penny Wong's, and look, this is consistent, as you said, with her tenure so far and that of the Albanese government, you start with the question of identity. So I'll quote here. It is my honour to speak on behalf of a country that is home to people from more than 300 different ancestries and to the oldest continuous culture on the planet. Like this hall, Australia is an assembly of the world's peoples. When Australians look out to the world, we see ourselves reflected in it. Equally, the world can see itself reflected in Australia. So the sum of her earlier speech in Southeast Asia, but there's a new dimension to that, which is that we see ourselves in the UN and we look out from our shores. Now, she then mentions the government's determination to locate First Nations perspectives at the heart of Australian foreign policy and even elevate First Nations voices at UNGA, which is quite remarkable. I cannot recall a foreign minister making such an effort to reshape the perception of Australia's identity. And that's not to say that her predecessors never invoked Australian identity. Of course they did. But I'm used to hearing stories about war and courage and diggers, which of course are fundamental to our identity too, but they are very much rooted in our modern Anglophone history. Wong is saying we're much more than that, we're much older than that. And in many ways, I think she's speaking to Australians as much as she is to the rest of the world. So it makes me wonder like, whether a focus on identity matters for our soft power. That's typically where this kind of strength can manifest in the government's power and influence. I don't know. I mean, of course, the world is aware as we are that Australia has a dark and deeply troubled history in dealings with our treatment of Indigenous Australians. And a lot of work remains to be done there. But I think being proud of that macro history and being open about the work needed to be done to correct for historic injustices is a positive start. It's the best way of framing it, just like the United States and the Biden administration is open about the racial troubles in its history and present as a strength of its system rather than something that it is ashamed about in which it's trying to draw contrasts with places like China. And this brings me back to a point I made earlier. I mean, this isn't a speech that will move the needle with large countries like the US or Europe or Japan or China. It's a speech that might however, at the margins resonate with our colleagues in the South Pacific or Southeast Asia. I mean, Alan, you mentioned the explicit regionalist strain in her speech, but perhaps even this section on identity 
is partly addressed to our neighbours too. We know, and the government knows, that we need to demonstrate constantly that we care about the things they care about, that we listen. But there's also, I think, a dimension of showing an authentic cultural, historical, and indeed spiritual connection to our geography, to our locality. I think that's especially true with the South Pacific, who are facing an existential threat to their land by climate change. And so rooting some of our history and identity in that, I think, has a lot of potential. Anyway, finally, to your points about agency and the government's focus on non-proliferation, they're well taken, Alan, but it's almost a very stark and depressing contrast with the current situation in Ukraine, where we have great power politics at its most acute and consequential. If Russia uses a nuclear weapon, the world will change forever. And the instruments of statecraft that might be able to prevent that lie in the hands of the most powerful states, the US, Germany, China, India, not small and middle powers. Of course, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And of course, we should do, as the foreign minister says, ask ourselves how we can each use our state power, influence, networks and capabilities to avert catastrophic conflict. But in this case, these probably need to be channeled through the great powers who have the capability to have a needed short-term impact. I mean, would you agree with that? I think that's right. It doesn't mean that Australia and other countries which have a long experience and history in non-proliferation and disarmament issues shouldn't be adding our weight to the discussions, but it's the big guys who are going to have to make the decisions in the immediate future. Mm. All right, for our final segment, Alan, you've recently been involved in a Track 1.5 process, which gives us an opportunity to discuss what they are and why they're important, I think, for the first time on the podcast. So what is a Track 1.5 dialogue and what function do they play? Okay, look, I could tell when I first raised this, Darren, that you thought that the subject fell somewhere on the spectrum between unexciting and tedious. I think you're projecting, Alan. I think you're projecting. I was very new. No, no, no. I, I know what I heard. But let me tell you why I thought it was worth discussing. Most of the things we talk about on the podcast are what everyone would more or less agree are newsworthy. That is dramatic global developments like the war in Ukraine, big speeches like Penny Wong's at the UN, international rivalry and so on. But foreign policy is much more than that. And we've had very little to say over 103 episodes, really, about the bilateral relationships which form much of the day-to-day -day work of tending the garden, planting the seeds, harvesting the crops of our diplomats. So I wanted to say something about a conference I was involved in on Thai-Australia relations. As you said, this is what is known as a 1.5-track conference, and that's just a diplomatic term of art used to describe meetings involving not just government officials, but also academics, retired officials and others to talk about a particular topic. The idea is that the officials can keep the discussion tethered to the reality of government policy, while the point fives can speak more frankly, raising uncomfortable positions, you know, flying kites and so on. Now, look, in my experience over the years, these sometimes work well and sometimes turn out to be pretty pedestrian. In this case, I was invited by the organisers of a dialogue to strengthen the relationship between Thailand and Australia to be the 
chair, I guess, of the Australian delegation matching a distinguished former Thai official who's now a senator. The convener and organiser of the program was the Asia Foundation based in Bangkok, together with the Coral Bell School at the ANU. Well known to you, Darren. These things only work if you have the right people on both sides, and that means diverse, knowledgeable individuals with a good range of experience. And in this case, the ambassadors from both countries participated along with some very senior current officials. Look, I won't go into it all, but it was exceptionally well organised, I thought, and the discussions were framed really cleverly around all the main issues in Australia's bilateral relationship with Thailand. And Thailand, let's remember, is one of our principal Southeast Asian partners. One of the outcomes for me anyway was a reminder that Australia's opportunities in the region are not just multilateral, not just regional, not just caught up in ASEAN, but bilateral. And one of the jobs of foreign policy is to identify fresh areas of opportunity. I think both sides came out of the meeting with an agenda of work that will benefit us both in areas like trade, energy, climate change. There was frank but respectful discussion of differences over a couple of questions like China and Myanmar. And there were reminders for Australia of some of our own failings, including the impact of bureaucracy and delays in our immigration and visa systems, which came through very strongly. So look, it was a good example of the sort of cooperation between middle powers that Senator Wong was calling for in her speech. Well said, Alan. And my first reaction is that someone really ought to build a model (laughs) of the role of Track 1.5 and Track 2 diplomacy in the national interest. Oh, we're waiting. We're waiting. (laughs) Because, of course, Track 2 diplomacy is when there are no government officials involved. And you might know this history better than me, but I recall um, there being some very meaningful Track 2 dialogues between Japan and China in the 1970s. I think that created back channels between the two countries that could be activated when tensions arose in the bilateral relationship. Retired officials like you, Alan, and academics like me can sometimes meet with counterparts in circumstances where it would be too politically fraught for official contact to occur, or our presence or indeed our convening power with the ANU organising this can provide some cover for officials to be in the same room or lately, I suppose, on the same Zoom call. (laughs) But having participated in a few, I am constantly reminded of how I would utterly fail as a diplomat. And maybe that's what you're hearing in my voice when we were discussing this hour in advance, because I am just too impatient to get to the point, to get to the thorny issues, which as a theorist are also the most intellectually interesting And so many times, you know, I've participated and I've personally gotten very little out of being present. And so these days I'm more and more reluctant to participate. But look, any benefit to me is 110% beside the point. And I have great admiration and gratitude for the effort colleagues around Canberra put into making these things happen. All right, Alan, let's get to our final segment, reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us this week? An easy winner this week. The latest quarterly essay, Uncivil Wars, How Contempt is Corroding Democracy by Waleed Ali and Scott Stevens is an important read in its own right. 
But for this podcast's purposes, the treasure is really at the end in the replies to Hugh White's Sleepwalk to War essay, which we talked about a few weeks ago. As I said, when Hugh's essay came out, one of the great things about his work is his clarity and the way he forces you to respond to his arguments, whether you agree or not. His now extensive body of writing on Australia's response to China's rise and the challenge to American hegemony in Asia has certainly been an important contribution to the Australian debate. And the quarterly essay or the editor has now assembled a really stellar group of people to respond to Hughes' challenges. They include from politics, Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd, from the world of practice, Peter Varghese, from universities and think tanks, Rory Medcalf, Sam Rogovin, from a non-Australian perspective, Michael Green and Kishore Mababani, and from what you might call a non-establishment angle, Dennis Altman and Emma Shortus. Then we've got a response from Hugh to his critics. So if you want to understand this debate and the issues it throws up for Australia, and that really means most of us, then there's no better place, I think, to get a grip on it than this calm, thoughtful, well, mostly calm and thoughtful collection. So have you read it yet, Darren? No, Alan, I did not realise it was out yet. You recall I had seen on Twitter a couple of the early replies from Rudd, from Mark Harrison and from Rory, but I didn't realise the full edition was out, so I'm very much looking forward to reading through all of them. But the school holidays have just gotten started and we're going away at the end of this week. You're about to head away too, Alan, so I've been clawing my way to the finish line with work and have not done any significant reading or watching or listening, but I do have something to recommend because I have not cried with so much joy and laughter watching this four-minute clip in a very long time. So I'm recommending something I saw on Twitter. And I'll post the tweet link in the show notes, but if you're listening and you don't want to pull those up, do a search for the account of Paul O'Kane. P.M. O'Kane is the handle. And his tweet says, this is one of the funniest pieces of live radio you'll ever hear. And so what it is is a, a segment of about four minutes long that came from a BBC radio program in Northern Ireland. And about the only thing that's missing is is subtitles, where a gentleman calls into the radio show. It actually happened, which is why I think it's so funny. But then some genius animators created a stop-motion animation. You know, just like we would have music as a soundtrack for, for a video, this is a video soundtrack or, you know, visual track for audio. You come for the audio, but the video gives it so much hilarious colour that it really makes for a perfect four minutes of entertainment. So I won't say anything about what the content is, except that it involves a chicken and joy, just pure, pure joy. So I couldn't recommend it more highly to all of you with the only caveat that you've got to have the sound up really loud because the accents are a bit thick and you want to be able to get as much as you can about what's actually happening. But the visuals make it clear anyway. So I think everyone will enjoy it. Joy and laughter, what the world needs now, Darren. (laughs) Absolutely, Alan. That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Artiga Meki for her audio editing today. And thanks also to Rory Setting for composing our theme music. We are going to take a bit of a break, but we'll speak to you towards the end of October. Until then.